0: Thanks for downloading this message from Devoted, the Christ Central Festival for all the family. Christ Central is part of New Frontiers and our distinctives are made up of four priorities. Being friends, enjoying God together, building churches empowered by word and spirit, advancing the kingdom, transforming the world, and reaching nations, making disciples. Devoted is just one event, but you can find out
1: more about Christ Central and other training opportunities at ChristCentralChurches.org. For more about Debated, please visit debatedevent.org. Thanks for
0: listening. See you next time.
2: Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, Are you hearing me? Great, that's good. Um, So welcome to this uh, Life Zone. Uh, This uh, Life Zone is actually... Uh, under the banner of Jubilee Plus, an initiative that many of you will be familiar with, but we've got lots of literature over there, Social Action Initiative linked to Christ Central Churches and New Frontiers generally. Uh, we've got a conference coming up on the 29th of October in Darlington. Uh, you've got a flyer in your welcome pack, but I'd like to invite you to that as well, where Krish Kandaya will be our uh, guest speaker and some great seminars and stuff going on there, so just keep that in mind. So we've got three seminars this morning. Um, uh, th- this, this, this week, surely, should I say. Uh, so today, as you know, we're dealing with refugees and immigration-related issues. Uh, tomorrow, Topi Kolioso is going to be here. He's one of our guest speakers, leader of a major church in London, Nigerian background church leader, who's going to talk about diversity, particularly racial diversity in churches. So do come back tomorrow. And then with Matt Cameron um, from Trussell Trust and Halifax Church Plant on fr- uh, the final day um, together we're going to look at the welfare system, principles, Christian perspectives and issues that we face. So um, I'll introduce uh, Dave in a moment when he comes to speak, so what we're going to do this morning is uh, we're going to speak in two sections with plenty of time for Q and A there will be a brief Q and A in the middle uh, and then a longer one at the end after Dave has spoken. Okay. so I tend to get given the sort of challenging topics at seminars. I notice that devoted. Um, Last year, we were looking at things like human trafficking and things like that. Uh, So this year, the team asked me to address the question of um, immigration uh, as a general issue and refugees as a uh, specific issue. So I want to do this uh, in a number of different ways. I want to sort of paint a general picture for you um, at the beginning of our conversation, because I think it's important to get the background. Obviously, it's a hot topic in our society, um, uh, and uh, let's see if I can get the the right slide up. Okay, that's fine. It's a very hot topic. So, in the news this week, we heard that net migration to the UK still in the region of 320 plus thousand. People Per year, that's the number of people who enter the country, um, take away the people who are leaving, and the net migration is over 300,000 a year. And it's a very hot topic politically, as illustrated by the uh, EU referendum, where uh, critics observing the referendum dynamics indicated that the immigration issue was central to the way that people voted. So it's a very important issue for Christians. Now, what I'm proposing to do to start with is just to set it in a much wider context. We live in a very unusual country with regard to immigration, and we often forget how unusual our situation is. Our situation is constrained by the obvious fact that we are an island, and it makes a fundamental difference to the issue of immigration. I'm a historian, and in history, there were There were waves of uh, invasion and immigration into Britain in the Anglo-Saxon period, the Viking period, up to the Norman Conquest, 1066. But from the Norman Conquest onwards, immigration has been, generally speaking, a very small issue in the dynamics of UK and British life. Up until uh, we had waves of immigration that came... Um, For example, the Huguenots, the French Protestants who were expelled from Europe under uh, persecution, about 100,000 of those uh, immigrated uh, in the 17th century. We had many Irish coming from another part of our country as it was then during the potato famine uh, in the 19th century. We had over 100,000 Jews coming at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the Nazi period. These are the waves of immigration and they're very, very modest compared with almost any other European country. So that's a first and interesting historical uh, comment that we might make. But since the Second World War, the issue of, of immigration has taken on a completely new, new dynamic. The Commonwealth immigration, Afro-Caribbean, Indo-Pakistani, Bangladeshi kind of immigration in the 50s and 60s was a major dynamic in our, in our national life and is now part of our national cultural reality. And then, of course, more recently, two things have happened. One is the EU freedom of movement has created a vast number of people coming in from EU countries, which is a subject of immediate political debate. So, for example, if we wanted to create a brand new city or town and we said to all the Polish people in this country, come and live in this new town we could create a city of at least 850,000 people created out of Poles alone and there are other nationalities too so we've had a lot of EU um, immigration and also uh, in recent years world instability political instability uh, Middle East Africa, other places is at such a high level that Britain is a refuge of choice for nationalities across the globe. So we've got two types of immigration taking place currently. We've got the European largely economic immigration, subject of immediate political debate. And we've got people largely seeking asylum... Uh, in this country, coming from unstable situations through suffering persecution or difficulty from many, many parts of the world. And Britain is a destination of choice for all sorts of nationalities. Maybe you're aware of all these things, but I think it's probably worth just setting the scene. Now, from a Christian point of view, one of the obvious uh, mistakes we can make is you start from an immediate situation and then just create an immediate response. But one of the best things for Christians to do, and the seminar is a good context to explore this, is to ask a bigger question What is the biblical context of some contemporary issue? Now, the Bible doesn't give you neat answers to contemporary issues, we're not looking for those, but it does give us context. So, I want to suggest to you some contextual things that you might find helpful as a Christian thinking about immigration. Here we are looking at a Christian perspective. In the second half, when Dave Smith speaks, he'll talk about some very, very down-to-earth practical responses to people in need. That will be an extremely important part of our seminar. But before we get to that point, let's just have a look at some more general things. It was obviously in God's creation plan that mankind should multiply and fill the earth, and one of the implications of this is the formation of National groupings all over the earth. You may not have done it, but if you look in Genesis 10, where you see Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and you see that from them it actually specifically says that nations form and spread out. So it's God's plan. The development of the uh, nations of the world is God's plan, even in the midst of sin spoiling the outworking of the plan. But then, three things I just want to say about. The generic things about the nation of Israel, and by the way, one of the useful things we're learning in these days, theologically and practically, is to use the story of Israel as part of the Bible narrative to inform the church in a way that some people historically have not done so much. We've sort of marginalized it, but there are principles and things in the story of Israel that are interesting. Here's a few. Abraham was a landless migrant, the father of faith The father of the Jewish people, and in a sense, the father of the people of faith in the New Covenant, according to the New Testament, lived much of his life, especially after the calling of God on his life, in a migration situation. So it's built right into the narrative, the biblical narrative, that the father of our faith was on the move and often in a vulnerable situation as a result of needing to move from place to place. And not only that, but the whole nation of Israel as a result of the famine in the days of Joseph migrated from what they, they knew to be the promised land into Egypt. And so we have a national migration. And then, of course, another move of migration when they come out of Egypt into the wilderness and into the promised land. And another thing that's not often recognized you may not be able to see this point at the bottom if you're sitting at the back. Israel was always a racially mixed nation. Very, very interesting point. When they came out of um, Egypt, people came with them. Some Egyptians and others actually came with them and left because they saw the, the hand of God with them or for any other economic reasons. And they, were, they formed part of the nation And so it's interesting, they're racially mixed. We have Rahab, we have the Gibeonites, we have Ruth. We have a whole series of stories in the Old Testament that indicate people getting added into the nation of Israel from other races. This is an important component in the understanding of Jewishness in itself, but we haven't got time to go down that particular road. But it's a very interesting point for us to make in the sense of understanding people movements. Now, when you zone in on Israel a bit more uh, particularly, and I have a particular interest in the law of Moses. Uh, by the way, that's not to obey the law of Moses, or to go back to the law of Moses, but to understand the law of Moses, just to clarify, just in case Jeremy Simpkins is listening to this later on and wonders what's happened in this seminar. But if, if you look at the principles underlying the law, you, of, you often find some very, very interesting things. And what we find is that, and I've used, these are my categories here, the law of Moses describes two types of people who come to Israel. Two types of uh, immigrants, if you like. And by the way, Israel was a place, a favored destination for immigrants. Have you heard that phrase anywhere earlier on in the seminar? Why? Because of their geographical position in the middle of the Fertile Crescent with Egypt to the south and then Mesopotamia and what we now call Syria to the north and and a desert to the east flow of people through Israel was a constant reality because of their geographical position. And so people coming to the land was a tangible material social and economic issue in the days of ancient Israel and looking because they maybe like what they saw there or they're escaping from somebody else. Isn't that an interesting point? And what the law of Moses identifies is uh, my phraseology, by the way, there's the Hebrew words behind it, I can tell you Um, but we haven't got time to go into all the detail of that. There were some people who were like mercenaries, traders, criminals, people passing through, people wanting to take something out of the nation, who were what I would describe non-assimilating residents. They lived there, but they weren't adopting the culture or uh, connecting with the land in any way other than for uh, selfish gain. And it's these people of whom the law of Moses said, when you charge, you know, you're not allowed to charge interest against your fellow Israelite, but the foreigner in the land, you can charge interest on loans. I wonder whether you remember that point. The the Hebrew word indicates it's the non-assimilating residents. So they, the people who were not willing to make adjustments to be in the culture were identified in their community. And were something of a challenge to the socio-economic framework of Israel. Does that sound familiar to you? The people who were not willing to make adjustments. It doesn't mean they had to believe in Yahweh and go to the temple and worship and so on. But they had to respect the culture and the values of the nation. On the other hand, assimilating settlers... In other words, people who came with an aspiration or a willingness to be part of that community that they were coming to were received with grace. Interesting. And so we get a number of scriptures which describe the second category. And here's a couple here. The foreigner there is the second category not the first category. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the Jews had an experience of being outside their land and being migrants and being vulnerable, and that experience Informed their attitude to people who found themselves in a similar position when they had got their land. And another one, Deuteronomy 10. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you're to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. You may be familiar with these scriptures, but they represent the second category which I am describing to you as assimilating settlers, someone who says, I'm going to settle in your country and I'm willing to adapt my culture, my language to a certain extent so that I can be part of your culture. Now, this this cuts very close to some of the issues of culture that are being debated. And it's not to say we should do exactly the same, but I'm just saying, isn't it interesting that in the Old Testament, those who came into the country to exploit it, as it were, uh, or passing through, were treated differently from those who made an intention to settle for uh, whatever reason. So migration is a constant reality in the Old Testament, and there's much more that we could um, ultimately say about that. But let's think about the New Testament for a moment. We all know, and it's often said that Jesus himself was, at least for a period in his life, a migrant on the move, his family fleeing from Herod the Great. Do you remember that when Joseph had a dream and they fled to Egypt? Now, our church, the New Testament church, as has been amply demonstrated this morning in our first session, is overtly described, theologically defined, as what I call a supranational community. It's an international community. It goes beyond nation by definition. So this will surely inform our thinking about race and immigration to a significant measure. Now that is not anything that you would disagree with. I'm laying it down simply because we just need to say this is what the New Testament says. And Paul as an apostle fought tooth and nail to break down the biggest racial barrier that he confronted due and Gentile, and it took him years and years of hard work and a lot of writing in the New Testament to persuade all sides that in Christ, the Jew is still a Jew, but the Jew is not superior to the Gentile. The Gentile is still a Gentile, but the Gentile is not superior to the Jew. That they are part of one family, that their identity in Christ is greater than their identity and their racial identity. He spent, he spent a huge amount of effort trying to work on that particular reality. And of course, in every culture, there are these major strongholds of how we identify together. Can we be an Israeli and a Palestinian? Can we be a Turk and a Kurd in the same congregation? And you go around the world and you'll have these enormous creative tensions. But ultimately, God's intention is to, be, to transcend those uh, national realities, not to abolish them, by the way, but to transcend them. The third thing in the New Testament that I notice that sometimes we don't emphasize is that the church was on the move. People move from place to place, often because of persecution. And so there's a sense in which the church has that experience of migration sometimes because they can't stay where they want to stay because of the pressure on the church. Now, we don't experience that so much in Britain, but it's a, it's a reality for our Christian brothers and sisters in many parts of the world. Now, Acts 17 makes it clear God has oversight of the destiny of nations. In Paul's uh, great speech in Acts 17, connected with his visit to Athens, he has an oversight. He knows what's going on in the ups and downs of national destinies. He's interested in nations. He recognizes nations, ethnic groups, as well as their political outworkings. He may not endorse them formally, but he recognizes their reality. And then if we f- conclude this picture, very brief biblical overview, but I'm just hoping it gives you one or two insights that might just help you to think about this. I would conclude this really in Revelation chapter 7, where you have these two remarkable pictures of uh, the people of God in eternity. So what do we see? We see uh, Revelation 2 in the early part, we see a description of, of like uh, Jewish tribes, 144,000, like a complete demonstration of, 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 of probably of Jews themselves. Uh, scholars disagree on that, but that's my view of that text. And then that's very uh, quickly followed by the much better known text to us, which is that he saw a multitude, John saw a multitude that no one could number, consisting of every single tribe and nation and language group in heaven. So we know what God's ultimate destiny is. The interesting thing is he could probably still recognize their cultural and national and, and ethnic identity, it's not abolished in Christ, but it's transcended by a greater reality. One of the things we need to think about is what is the identity of individual people? Is it in their family? Is it in their nation or ethnic group? Is it in creation in the image of God? Or is it in redemption in Christ? There's a creative tension in our discussions about these different levels of identity. Am I, through, in my family and community, is that my prime identity? Is my ethnic identity the prime one? Or is my creational identity uh, in the image of God the primary one? Or is my redemptive I- identity in Christ the primary one? The last two become more important Uh, as time goes on uh, and the advance of the church, the the creational identity and the redemptive identity. And we have to wrestle with that. So I'm going to conclude with just a few simple things. I don't want to spend too long on this section because Dave's got a very important one to come. But I want to just say a couple of things on terminology of the current debate and then a few concluding points and then I'll hand over to Dave. So let's be clear about terminology. The word immigrant is an all-inclusive term for people moving into a country. That includes everybody. But an asylum seeker is someone who is seeking legal status to be in this country, particularly because of persecution um, or intense hardship in their own nation. A refugee, in our terminology, is someone who's gained the legal right to live in this country. An illegal immigrant is someone who's stayed on after they've been refused that right. So we use these terminology. We just need to be careful that we use them accurately. And then we have a final term which is used in this discussion, an economic migrant, which is someone who's coming here for economic reasons rather than because of intense Persecution or hardship in another nation necessarily. So we, just a quick word on terminology. My final points, and in a moment we'll pause, have a couple of questions maybe, and then I'll hand over to, to Dave because we're going to look at the issue on the ground very closely when Dave comes up to speak. So here are my suggestions as to things that we as Christians should be focusing on uh, when dealing with the current situation of immigration in the UK. I think these five things are particularly important. At a psychological and an emotional level, I think people in Britain need to really, and Christians particularly, face up the fact that immigration is an ongoing reality, and it's not something that some politician is going to just suddenly stop. Now, there may be a reduction, there may be values in reducing it, that, that's not what I'm saying, but immigration is a constant reality. And we've reached a situation in the world where immigration to Britain is There are all sorts of reasons why it's going to be an ongoing reality. Even if all net immigration from the EU ceased tomorrow, we still have a vast number of immigrants coming in from other countries. Our national net immigration is approximately 50% from the EU and 50% from the rest of the world. So we have to really engage with the issue. Secondly, at this particular time, it is evident that there are parts of our society that take a kind of racial attitude towards the issue of immigration. And groups in society who would target certain other nationalities, whether they be EU nationalities or other nationalities, and say, we don't want these people living in our country full stop. Now that narrative has been growing somewhat in recent years and has grown even more through the recent political circumstances and the police have identified this (coughs) in their statistics of incidents. So I think (coughs) there is a very strong prophetic role for the church to challenge attitudes to immigration that are based on race. And that will be a costly challenge for some of us in years to come. I would suggest, thirdly, we need to welcome what I call assimilating settlers, those who desire to be part of our community and are given a legitimate status to do that. Um, We should be on the front end of that welcoming process. Many of us are, more of us will be in days to come. And one of the ways we can do it, of course, is through churches. Dave Smith and I are working currently on working out ways in which we can help more churches be involved in refugee work through a partnership between Jubilee Plus and uh, the Boaz Trust that Dave uh, represents. So we're thinking about that. And we anticipate that in years to come, uh, uh, there'll be a great increase in churches engaged with all sorts of immigration issues and asylum seeking. And where possible, we need to connect with public policy Discussions. It's good to talk to politicians. <clears throat> I've spoken to my own MP about this issue face-to-face. And I think we need to not be afraid of the public policy discussions. You'll notice that I'm not suggesting public policy answers. That's not my job here uh, at this particular seminar. So I'm offering these initial thoughts as a kind of framing for our conversation. Biblical, historical, and national. And I hope you find that helpful just to sort of connect with the broader issues. It's not just something that's an immediate issue today. These are long-term issues. (coughs) Now, as it happens, many of us are the descendants of immigrants, or our best friends are immigrants or the descendants of immigrants. And so the process of who's who and what national identity really comprises becomes more complex the more history you put into it, the more generations you put into it. When I go and talk to my own MP, he delights in the surname of Kowczynski, which is a classic English name, as you can hear. In other words, he's a Polish immigrant, now my MP. And he's as British as they come, second generation. And of course, we have this process going on all the time. Now, there's an opportunity now, um, if Sheen is available, could you come and help me? Just to, If there's a couple of quick questions on this, I'll take them now. We've got a roving mic, and my colleague Sheena is going to uh, come and pass it around. If anyone wants to ask a couple of quick questions, then we'll only spend about five or so minutes on this. Just any clarifications or things you want to ask, and then we'll move on to Dave.
1: <coughs> um, one, one of the things that occurred to me is that in, in our city there is certainly a a dynamic of a Nigerian church. And given some of your comments about our identity in Christ and uh, welcoming assimilating settlers and and, and things like that, how how should we view that as the church at large?
2: Okay, so we've got a question here which is really about churches. Can I just generalize it rather than talk about your situation, which I don't know anything about in detail and don't have a, a view on? But... Of course, one of the the interesting things about immigration is that many Christians are immigrating to this country. Easily forgotten. Many Christians are immigrating. Syrians, Nigerians, uh, all sorts of people from the Arab world are coming in who have a Christian background. We have very large groups of dispersed Christians from other nations, and their natural instinct in the first generation is to form, if they have the numerical strength, to form their own churches. And I don't blame them for doing that. I think I might do that as well um, if I ended up in Mongolia and there were 70 other Brits around and I didn't speak any Mongolian and they were all Christians. I think I joined with them in the first instance. But the longer term goal is to move beyond that and very often that's a second generational development but the native churches as it were can open the door by building creative relationships with such congregations and our aspiration would be to raise up leaders within that ethnic group which then attract people in this is the subject of tomorrow's seminar so therefore I will leave the case there you'll have an expert on the topic here tomorrow. So you'll have to be here now, won't you? You can't go to another seminar, can you? I've got one more question here and one over there. So can we take them in that order? John here and then Raj. Uh,
1: when, when I've talked to people on a personal level, and it's sometimes seen that the church um, supports these immigrants and you know, tries to help them. One of my friends works amongst them in a major city. Um, that, um, th- that, that brings hostility towards the church. Uh, we're not not only hostile to immigrants, but they're hostile to us. If I had to comment to that, how do you deal with that? I find that very personally, very tough. Well, I think um,
2: uh, this can happen. And so church leadership, I think the key lies in the heart of the church leaders. So church leaders need to have a heart, a heart right in their heart. Every church elder, one of the qualifications of eldership is to have a heart for the nation's even if you have no skill and cultural skill at relating to a particular group, even if you're not the front-line person, it's the, in the heart of the leaders, affects the culture, and then they can defend the people if they get into trouble. Now, this is one of the most critical issues of transformation for the church in the next generation, is that most people in church leadership currently, both in our type of church and other churches, grew into church leadership without seriously thinking about the nations of the world as a pastoral issue in their church at the formative stage of their eldership. They bolted it on later on. And that's quite hard to do. It can be done easily it, with, by God's grace, but you have to you have to have a reengineering of some of your thinking and understanding. Um, and so that is one of the change things which I believe will come about even through seminars like this and some people here hearing me speak today will know that is a challenge for them in leadership. If you have a heart, then you can create the pastoral structure, and then you need to look for specialists, people with cross-cultural gifts, uh, as a kind of deaconing level in the church who can really absorb the this issue. And by the way, let me give you a biblical example. Uh, from the church in Jerusalem, do you remember the early food bank that they had the daily distribution of food? And the uh, the, the widows were, some of the widows said, we're not getting enough uh, of the food distribution. So they appointed seven men to oversee that process. Well, these weren't just food bank managers. No disrespect to them. They were engaging in a very, very difficult pastoral ta- task because the Jews at the time were divided between the Hellenistic Jews from the Roman world, Greek speaking, and the Hebraic Jews, mostly from east of Israel and, and Israel, who had real cultural tensions and so the, the leaders saw the importance of this integration process, had a heart for it, but they appointed skilled people to enact it. One more question, Raj, and then I'm going to hand over to Dave. I don't want him to lose his time.
3: Um, it's probably going to be dealt with
0: later on, but you mentioned they're welcoming assimilating settlers, and the two groups were set, assimilating and non-assimilating. Do you have any comments about non-assimilating settlers?
2: Well, this is a question that I'm hoping Dave is going (laughs) to answer. I'm deliberately leaving that open because I'd like to take that question in the second Q&A. I'm happy to comment on it, but I want to empower Dave to do it because he's more involved in it on the ground um, and he may have some comments on it. So hold me to account later on, Raj. But because Dave's presentation is so relevant to that, I think we should uh, listen to that first. I'm only making a generic biblical point, and uh, there's further applications uh, that we may need to take. Right, we're going to move um, in a moment into the second half. So I hope that's helpful. Is that getting you on the page? Is that um, supporting what you intended to be here for? Right. So um, Dave Smith, who I'm going to introduce in a moment, in a moment I'd love you to give him a warm welcome, uh, heads up the Boers Trust. He'll tell you about that in Manchester. He's working strategically with uh, Jubilee Plus. Uh, working with refugees and asylum seekers on the ground. Um, He's written a great book, uh, which I recommend. It's in the bookstore. How Do We Respond? Refugee Stories, which I was privileged to read before publication and comment on, and I've requested for this to be in the bookstore. Uh, It's a great book, just telling the stories of people. There's nothing like hearing the stories to actually understand the incredible pressure dilemmas, so I'm recommending that uh, to you. Um, in just a moment. Now, we need to, can you just welcome Dave as he comes while I just change the PowerPoint. <laughs> I'm hoping just to get the PowerPoint up. Just
0: while that's coming up, just a, just a word on terminology. I, I'm, I'm a linguist by uh, training, and I, I, I'm really interested in terminology, and um, So what you actually call people is really, really important. There are some people who will not call asylum seekers asylum seekers because they don't like the word asylum because it's associated with madness. So they call them sanctuary seekers, which is great. And there are some people that won't call them anything apart from refugees because they refuse to make that distinction. They say, if you've fled, you're a refugee. And so they will call them all refugees, which isn't very helpful sometimes because you need to make a distinction between people who are seeking asylum and people who have got it. So I don't find that particularly um, helpful. But there's also interesting that we call people who emigrate from this country expats. But we don't call people that immigrate expats So I would love to see a change around. And every time you refer to somebody coming in here, call them expats, Polish expats or or whatever they want to be. And when you get somebody that goes abroad, call them emigrants or migrants or if they're going to work, call them economic migrants because that's what they are. And actually, there's a very interesting statistic that came out the other day which simply said that that there are more Brits living abroad any other European country there are 4.9 million of us living abroad and the next one is Germany which is a bigger country than us and there's 4.4 million Germans and all the the rest are less than that so I I think that's interesting Okay, Um, working with refugees in the UK I'm hopeless with technology where do we go, that one? no, go back Um, it's the down button isn't it, oh there that's where it is, Okay. There we go. That's great. They're all coming up one at a time, so I'm going to stand here to do this, if that's okay. The first question, I guess, is people seem to think, depending on which newspaper you read, and I won't go through the ones you shouldn't read, but you can see me afterwards and I'll tell you which they are. Okay. Um, But sometimes you think that they get absolutely everything. They come in and you get put in a hotel, a wonderful hotel. If they do get put in a hotel, it's because there's no room anywhere else, and it's usually a run-down hotel that other people don't want to go to, in places like Eastbourne or, or wherever it is. And you know. <laughs> But that that's the reality. They're there for a couple of weeks, and then they're shoved off somewhere else across the country. And, of course, they, they get given mobile phones and all sorts of other things, and that's a lie because nobody gets given a mobile phone. They have to have a mobile phone because they need to contact people like their solicitors, and they don't have landlines, of course. So they've absolutely got to have it. How do they contact people back home? They don't do it. The state doesn't do it all. In fact, it does very little. Um, Recent trends, obviously, we've we've seen more people um, trying to get here in, the, in uh, across Europe as well. There've been something like almost a million people coming across, in, in, uh, heading north into Europe last year. And but in, when they get here, the recent trend is that things have got more difficult for people. It has not got easier we're not giving them more a couple of years ago um, there was uh, the government decided that it was not going to have two rates of benefits any longer so it cut the top rate and so there's one rate for everybody now so the top rate went of asylum benefits at the same time in germany Um, There was a court case, and the Germans, who were actually giving the same amount for their asylum seekers, decided to put theirs up by 50%, and we didn't. Um, Yeah, I'm going to just pile on with some of these. These are the things we're going to look at, okay. So does the state do it all? No, they don't. Um, you get no-choice accommodation. When you actually come into the country, you, you, you might spend a couple of weeks in a hotel or a hostel or something, and then you're dispersed, and you don't get a choice as to where you go. You're dispersed somewhere across the country. If you've got relatives here, you can live with them, but you won't get anything for, for, for the housing element of that. You'll, you'll get some benefits, but you won't get any housing uh, costs at all. Otherwise, you can be sent anywhere. And we've got some folks from Middlesbrough here, and there's a big debate in Middlesbrough as to whether they've got too many at the moment because the housing is cheap up there, and there are loads and loads of people being sent to Middlesbrough, for example. Um, that's what they get a week, £36.95. and pence. That has to, doesn't cover the heating and lighting because that's given free of charge, which is, is another issue because if you come from a country like the Congo where it's hot all the time, then what you do is you leave the windows open and you keep the heating on full. And then if they get their refugee status, there's a bit of an issue there because nobody tells them it's going to cost them a bomb. So one of the first people I met, we used to walk around with shorts on in the middle of winter with the heating full-blown on the house. And the windows open. And sometimes the door open because that's what you do in the Congo. you know. <laughs> so there are issues around that. But that's what they get, £36.95. That's just over a fiver a day to live on and that includes your mobile phone top-up and that includes your, um, your, your, your bus fares and the government has allocated out of that £36.95 three pounds for travel a week now you tell me anywhere where you can travel one return journey for three quid you can't do it in Manchester and you probably can't do it almost anywhere in the country but that's what they've allocated, they said that's enough And £36.95 is enough for people to live on. There's no right to work if you're an asylum seeker. If you're in the system, you have no right to work. Uh, There's a limit to legal aid. Legal aid has been cut over over time. You can still get it, but there, there are a lot more restrictions than there ever used to be on legal aid. And often what happens is when it goes to an appeal, if people are refused, the solicitor will say... I'm sorry I can't take your case to appeal because I don't think it's strong enough because I don't think you'll, you'll actually pass, you'll get your leave to remain and therefore I won't get paid. And that's roughly how it works. So there's a sort of 50-50 type uh, test that solicitors often do and, and if, they, if they don't think there's a 50% chance they will not take the case. So, so, so quite often now people will go to an appeal and they don't have a solicitor. Um, Limited ESOL classes, years ago when I first started doing this stuff, um, it was pretty easy to get um, English classes at college, you could could go and book on a course and it's got more and more difficult over the years, churches are beginning to step in to that, but basically it's much harder to learn English, which doesn't help much when you get your refugee status because the government says you should have learned English by now, (laughs) because you need to assimilate. You need to apply for jobs and go down. Why haven't you learned English? Because there isn't enough English for them to learn. And people want to. People want to. Um, around two-thirds of initial decisions are refused. Actually, there's some new statistics that came out yesterday, and the refusal rates have gone up this year. They had been coming down, and I think... Um, let me get it right. I can't remember, but it's something like about four. Um, about it's more than two thirds anyway. I think it was 31% uh, were granted in the last two quarters um, at the initial decision. Your initial decision happens at, uh, um, sometimes. It's a few weeks. Sometimes it's a few months after you first come to the country. And uh, at least two thirds of people are being refused at that stage. And then it goes to appeal. Right, recent trends. So, uh, in terms of the UK, um, numbers have gone up. This is the number from last year, 32,454, plus dependents of about 34,500 people altogether, which you can easily get into most football stadiums, and sometimes you can get you know, two, twice that lot into a football stadium. So it's not big numbers. When people are talking about being swamped, they're not being swamped by asylum seekers, You might think you're being swamped by immigrants in general, but that's a tiny proportion of the number of immigrants that are coming into the country. Far more are coming to study, to work, all sorts of other things, but very few asylum seekers. Um, They have gone up, those numbers, but they, 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 they peaked in 2002 when there was all sorts of stuff happening around the world in different places, loads of wars going on in Africa and people fleeing all over the place. And at that time, it was 80,000 that came in. So that's they went right down to about 18,000. Now it's gone up to 32. Immigration bill has just um, come out, and that is making things much harder. It's even making it harder for people who are not seeking asylum um, just for ordinary immigrants in this country, even people from the States. Because you now have to, if you're, if you're going to rent somewhere, then you have to... Um, you have to prove your status. You have to prove your eligibility. And if you go on the um, the, the UK um, website, the government website, you will see that there are, I think, nine different possible um, documents that you can use to prove your eligibility to rent. And uh, what a lot of landlords are doing is they're hearing what the accent is and saying, I'm sorry, that's gone. Even Americans. <laughs> This is even happening to Americans. There was an American lady who's married to an English bloke and she rang up five different places and couldn't get anywhere to rent. Her husband rang up and there was no problem. So if it's happening for Americans and it's certainly happening to others. There are more families now being having no recourse to public funds. Uh, One of the recent things that's happened is that some people are being allowed to stay here. They've been given leave to remain in the country, limited leave, sometimes two and a half years, but with no recourse to public funds, which isn't much help if you're a lady with two um, small children. Because how can you earn money when you're looking after your kids? And so increasingly, um, I had a, had a, a phone call from Bedford Bedfordshire County Council, I think, they're looking at what they can do as a county council about exactly that situation, where families are going to be, or women with children, are going to be having no recourse to public funds. And basically, there's not much they can actually do because they're not allowed to do very much. Greater numbers in detention. I think the numbers are going up. Um, There's about three or, or, or... more than 3,000 in detention at the moment, immigrants. Some of those will have committed crimes. Some will be overstayers. Um, there's between 1,000 and 1,500 uh, asylum seekers. The vast majority of those have committed no crimes whatsoever. They're there because um, the intention is to remove them from the country. When they refused asylum, the government wants to remove them. But unfortunately, they can't. Um, very often people cannot be removed from the country. It's not as easy as saying, oh, send them all back, because you've got to get documents for them. Often they came in with, um, without um, documents saying who they actually are, without um, legal documents, because they couldn't get them in their own country. If you're fleeing from somewhere that wants you – know, from a government that wants to lock you up, you don't say who you are when you try and get out. You get a false document, which the UN recognizes – the Refugee Convention recognizes that you can actually have that's That should not be punishable by law. Sometimes it is, even in this country, if you come in on false documents. that you should not be punished for that. Um, so detention is, is an incredible, you know, a, a, a real issue, I think. And that's something that I, I wish that more Christians would get involved in. There are lots of uh, immigration removal centers out there and people crying out, to be visited. So, um, yeah, Um, yeah, more smuggling, more border controls. Um, Just last week, I think, or the week before, there are three, no, eight more boats um, or ships going to be commissioned to patrol our borders, to patrol our our seas, because they've only got three at the moment, looking out for smugglers. Um, So that's going to be another nice cost to the taxpayer trying to stop people coming in. I don't know how much... Was it was $7 million we spent on the razor wire at Calais and to try and stop people getting in the back of lorries and stuff like that. And more and more. If, you, if, you, if you're talking about border controls, border controls cost a lot of money. You're going to have to employ a lot of people. And actually, it's a two-way thing, isn't it, as well? Because when you go on holiday... Brexit might sound a great thing, but when you go on holiday you won't be able to go through that aisle you have to go through the other one non-european and will it be a longer delay it probably will so anyway that's another issue (laughs) we're not on that one today sorry um so what's the need and what can the church do um okay so first of all there's the thing about welcoming people are coming here and they need to be welcomed um at the Boaz Trust, and I'm not actually the, the boss there anymore. I'm not the CEO, but um, I founded it, and I've sort of handed it over, but I'm still working there a couple of days a week. So um, when what we've noticed is that because we're dealing with people who have refused asylum, we're accommodating about, about 60 people who have been refused asylum, and what you notice is that if only they'd had friends at the beginning then maybe they would have not been refused. If only they had people they could have confided in, people that had welcomed them, people that had helped them through the system, that had gone to appeals with them, that had written a letter on their behalf, that had helped them to understand what's going on because Home Office doesn't tell you what's going on half the time. And sometimes your solicitor is so busy, they can't tell you either. So having friends is absolutely crucial. And the sooner they get friends, the better. There's some great projects out there in Derby, Upbeat Communities, which is Derby Community Church. They run a thing called Welcome Boxes, and, uh, and that's brilliant because it means that, um, that people get welcomed when they come in. Somebody will go and knock on the door and say, I'm just, just a neighbor from, from around here and we've got a, from the church, and we've got a, a welcome box for you. I know you've got children, so we've got some toys in here. and It would uh, be lovely if I could show you around a bit, and that is so crucial. Um, right at the beginning Esol classes really important to for people to learn english, and there isn 't enough of it out there and um i don 't is there any from back anybody from Action Foundation here today in Newcastle no, but Newcastle've got a really good uh, scheme the um The church up there is, is jubilee church isn 't it yeah and um, Julian Pryor, if you go online, look up Action, Action Foundation, and you'll find um, Action Learning. And that, they've got a fantastic scheme as to how you can sort of do ESOL and make it, make it work in terms of finance as well. So a brilliant scheme up there. But ESOL classes, much more important. Conversation clubs, you can, there are some that have been set up by City of Sanctuary groups. You can get involved in those. Just a place for people to meet. I was in Sheffield. Uh, walking down a corridor and I heard this noise, this sort of hubbub going on. I thought, what's going on in there? And I looked in and there was 100 people sat out at desks in this big hall and some of them had got photographs they were showing folks and some had got, um, they were playing chess and some were playing drafts and some were just chatting and that was their conversation club. Wonderful opportunities for people to, to engage. Uh, lots of things, that people need things to do. If you're an asylum seeker, you're not allowed to work. You need things to do. Apart from just watching the telly, um, you need things to do. So it's really important, arts and crafts, volunteering, days out, all of that sort of stuff is absolutely vital. Um, uh, particularly, well, the biggest problem that um, asylum seekers have in this country is mental health problems. And it's generally not caused by what happened over there. Because you can understand what happened over there. You know You know that when somebody's trying to shoot you, that's bad. You know if somebody gets shot, that's bad. And then you come here and you seek asylum and people just don't listen to you. That's what causes the mental health problems. I've met people who have actually been in, in jail in this country. Not committed a crime, but he was put in jail and when he came out he was hearing voices when he went in he wasn't it's caused here help for newly granted refugees when somebody gets their refugee status that is not the end of the problems because you may have been waiting for years not allowed to work no CV what have you been doing the last couple of years nothing sitting around because I haven't been able to do anything a lot of them will be volunteering, but that's, that's all they'll have on the CV. And, if they, and can they get stuff from their own country? Probably not. So how do they, how do they get a job? You go to the job centre, and if, you don't, if your English is not great, how can you apply for five jobs in a week if you can't understand what all the stuff is on the wall? You know? And you don't have experts in job centres helping them or people that speak their languages. They don't exist. So people that can go with them can help them out. You get four weeks to leave your your accommodation. I'm. I'm. But we're buying a house at the moment. We don't have a mortgage, but it's taking weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to sort the thing out. Even without a mortgage, without a chain, if people and you, if you go to your council, the council will say, "I'll give you a list of private um, landlords to go to." They're no longer have an obligation to house people unless they're particularly vulnerable so you've got four weeks that's from the letter being written <laughs> um, you have to get out of your accommodation you have to find somewhere else to live and that's really difficult without help and that's where the church comes in okay just rattling on quickly here yeah I think if church services I would say don't just sing a song you know, um, in in the particular language, but actually be culturally re- relevant to people if you can. Do something with your service that actually will will engage with people, um, and think who you're talking to as well. I think that's really really important. Um, often we want to know their stories, but they may not want to tell their stories straight away because it takes time to be able to unburden that. So just treat them as human beings find out about them, invite them around, chat to them, be a friend, whatever. And, and gradually you'll find out what's going on in their lives. Um, yeah, asylum claim. You're not, we're not solicitors. We can't do solicitors' jobs. But often we can really help with their asylum claim. Sometimes the solicitors get so busy and it needs somebody to, to actually phone up the solicitor and say what's going on. What's going on with the claim? Because if they don't speak great English, they may not understand that. And often uh, it can can go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. So helping with that. You can go with them to court as well. You can be a Mackenzie's friend. If they haven't got a solicitor at appeal, you can actually go and sit with them. And um, I can can give you details of how how you can do that. That really, really helps um, just to be there with them. If, if you're a minister, writing a letter on their behalf is really, really important. And there are particular ways in which you can do that, things about baptisms, things about attendance, that they are genuinely Christians and, and so on if they're in your church. You know, that's really, really important to be able to do that. Um, yep. if, they ha- if they've been refused, then they need accommodation. You know, it, it's sort of a fairly obvious thing, but if you haven't got a roof over your head, then it's very difficult to think about anything else until you have. And so it's absolutely crucial that churches step up and get involved and accommodate people who have been refused asylum in this country. And I run a thing called NACOM, um, which is a national accommodation network. We've now got 43 Uh, groups across the country who are doing that some very small some much bigger and there's loads of ways in which people can get involved in that and if you've got asylum seekers in your area that are destitute really really important to do that and there are two that I've met here this morning um, who used to be in, in Boaz accommodation they've now got leave to remain in the country and just accommodating them really really helped them to move on that next stage so um, absolutely crucial to do that. Uh, yeah, visit people in detention. That's scriptural. <laughs> Those in prison, um, uh, unaccompanied minors. There are loads and loads, especially in the southeast, coming into the country under the age of 18. You see them in the camps at Calais, and they need to be fostered or adopted. And um, Home for Good is is um, and. Yeah, Mart- uh, Martin was mentioning Krish Kandaya. Um, at the the going to be speaking at the conference. He runs that, and that that's uh, the sort of Christian fostering and adoption uh, agency, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, and and afterwards, I've I've got a sheet which is working with refugees in the UK, and that's on over there, and that's got all this stuff on, so you can um, have a look at that afterwards. Yeah. Uh, community sponsorship there's a lot of talk about Syrians and um, it's quite restrictive as to what the government is doing, it pledged to take 20,000 Syrians over five years which is a tiny tiny amount because there are 4.8 million Syrians in refugee camps (laughs) and you divide it, I did it once it's 20,000 into 4.8 and you get something like 0 point something percent So even if we took that number, 99.5%, percent are still going to be left there. And we're not going to hit that target at the moment. We've taken 1,300 in about nearly two years, I think, because they're relying on on local authorities to do it, and local authorities haven't got any houses, basically. So they're now looking at the church to do it. And again, there's stuff on on this website about... um, about four refugees and how that that works and community sponsorship schemes so we can take uh, Syrians in and look after them so churches are getting involved in that. Yeah, And pray (laughs) because that makes more difference than probably anything else and often you think about what can you do, what can you do, what can you do and if you just thought well let's pray first then that would actually Um, really help. But I find that when you pray, then God says, well, why don't you be part of the answer too? That's it. Thank you.
2: you. Now, uh, we're going to do some Q&A now, but one thing to say beforehand is that what Dave said will provoke lots of practical questions. And if we don't answer them in the Q&A, then Dave will be here afterwards. He is literally a mine of information on some very technical and practical questions. So if we can't deal with questions you have corporately, then do speak to Dave afterwards. He is well-connected around the country, been involved in, for many years in many different dimensions. Now, Sheena, could you take the microphone? Dave, could you just give the microphone to Sheena? With some, some questions, particularly to Dave, please, mm-hmm. uh, relating to this more focused area, refugees, asylum seeking, which was really part of what we're doing. Let's just take this question here in the middle. Maybe you could pass the mic along, and then if you could pass it back.
3: Hi. Uh, you mentioned mental health. Um, my question is specifically for mental health and people who are struggling with addiction problems as well. Um, obviously, there's support available there. Are they eligible for support? And if so, how do you get them into the system to get that support?
2: Right. So this is uh, the microphone's coming back while Dave's gathering his thoughts. That was one of the most significant things that he said is the mental health implications of what actually happens here?
0: Um, I I would say that most of the mental health problems are depression, which are primarily caused by the treatment that they get when they're here. Um, So if you can sort out the treatment from that angle in terms of accommodation and the friendship and being allowed to work and not being put in detention, then a lot of that will actually disappear. Clearly, there are people that are traumatized because of what's happened. Um, asylum seekers are entitled to primary health care. And even if you refused asylum, you're still, in, uh, you're still entitled to primary health care as long as you get your HC2 certificate um, updated every six months. And you're entitled to emergency treatment at hospital and so on, not secondary health care. Um, in terms of mental health services, we've found that because of the cuts, basically, it's very, very difficult to um, get the sort of uh, treatment that people need. Um, mainly, I think, because it's there's just so much pressure on that um, people probably need to be seen regularly and that often doesn't happen. Um, so it, it, it's quite sporadic, it varies from place to place. Um, I'm not an expert on the mental health stuff I just know it's, it's a huge huge issue um, I don't know if, if that helps but
2: could, As a follow on if, I, if you don't mind me just following on <clears throat> so what, what impact in terms of the overall mental health perspective would be a robust friendship program from the church all the way through how do you, how do you integrate this tendency to depression and isolation with this huge need for friendship and relationship could you just comment on that more generically
0: uh, yes I, d- I don't know I, um, I don't know if there's a sort of specific program that's needed no, no, no. as such but um i'm not suggesting a program no. I'm just
2: i'm suggesting the value of relationships to yeah. minimise that risk
0: yeah i think that that's absolutely crucial just knowing I and mean, i remember somebody saying that um it was actually a, a seminar in Greenbelt. Somebody was being interviewed, an asylum seeker. They'd been, they'd been put up by a, a, a vicar and her husband. And, um, and she said, well, it was great having accommodation, but the most important thing was having a friend. Um, and that stuck with me ever since, because um, just knowing you've got somebody that's there for you is absolutely crucial, I think. And there is many, many, many asylum seekers that are very isolated, very lonely. Sometimes they go years before they find somebody who actually will, will be a friend to them. Um, there's one lady who was in, in Bradford, and she was there for, for about two years. And the only people she was talking to were the people that, that she was in, in, in the same accommodation as. And nobody else actually engaged with her during that time. So, so I, I just think, you know, if you've got an opportunity to get to know people, whether it's people in your church, just be friendly to them. See what comes out of it. See where it goes, you know. Um, if, there's a, if there's an organization that's near to you that's, that's working in this field, then, and then see if you can get involved. Um, if there's, a, a, you know, if there's a, 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 an immigration removal center near to where you are, and most of those are down sort of... Gatwick and Heathrow sort of area and down south and so on and then how about seeing if you can be a, ho- a visitor to the detention centre because that will make such a difference to, to the people in there um, just knowing that somebody they can talk to and, and so much comes out of that, I think, I think that's the, the underlying cause of the mental health issues um, some people th- feel that they've never ever been listened to so
2: Right, okay, so let's just, uh, yeah,
1: just... I'm a retired general practitioner, so you sit with the person and you look at all the factors that, that are uh, impinging on their life, so-called outside or situational, exogenous depression. That's what it is. It's not psychotic depression, I'm sure. And you you put all those... Some of those things might take a long time, or their accommodation, everything else, but you you just look at the person as well. Also, if a person is on your NHS list, I'm sure this is right, then you can refer them to secondary care, to a psychiatrist. They have as much right to a referral as anybody else on your list.
2: Okay, let's take another question. The gentleman over here on my left, Sheena. uh, Let's fight
3: our way through here. Uh, I'm asking this question in the context of having recently befriended um, some Syrian Christian refugee family and a a non-Christian Syrian refugee family. The first I would I have known for four weeks and I would say they are settlers and they will assimilate. Uh, The thought of them being deprived of work, living on benefits for five years when they were past learners and they will pick up english quickly is horrendous can you say something about timing the transition between being a refugee and receiving right to remain and you know the, how how to judge that whole situation and, and how to build up the portfolio of ev- evidence that's needed to give them the best chance of, um, of, of of staying but you know without it taking an eternity I wish it was that easy. <laughs> um,
0: in theory, there, w- there was a time when the Home Office actually set targets on how how long it should take for somebody's asylum claim to be um, dealt with. But they've sort of moved away from that a little bit, mainly because they missed the targets regularly. Um, what tends to happen is there are certain categories of people who are more likely to get... Um, granted refugee status quicker because they come from a certain country because that country is really dangerous so Syrians would be the obvious one at the moment um, most Syrians will get refugee status fairly quickly um, I guess most interesting Eritreans um, and Eritrea is a country that is very much on my heart um, Um, because a lot of the people coming from Eritrea are people that are are fleeing persecution who are Christians Um, and uh, a very very um, evil dictatorship basically, communist dictatorship and um, a lot of the people that come from there are um, Christians already when they come here Um, but interestingly what happens there is that, that, that more Eritreans are now being refused initially because the Home Office has changed its guidelines. Um, there are lots of really good people, caseworkers, in the Home Office, but they are, they're, they're limited by country guidance. And if the country guidance is not right, which it often isn't, or isn't sufficiently wide, then they can't go beyond that. So the loads of Eritreans are being refused now, and then it goes to appeal, and they're all being accepted so, after appeal. But, but so on,
2: the, on the Syrian side, there's more, yeah. there's a quicker, pro- likely to be a quicker process. It's
0: likely that they will, they will get asylum quicker. So, um, it, yes. so roughly
2: how many months or years?
0: In terms of <coughs> time, it, Is that just under- no, nobody knows, to be quite honest. It, it can be very quick. It can be just a, a month or two in the country. There's It's more likely in the case of Syrians it will be within in a couple of months. If there's some problem proving they're Syrians, for example then it can take years. So, and that's, that's the problem, actually proving where you come from, what's happened to you, and so on. So.
2: Okay, we're near the end, but we've got time for maybe one or possibly two questions. This lady in the middle here.
1: I just wanted to ask your opinion on working with organizations out like the Refugee Council who aren't Christian. Um, what do you feel about
0: that? I think my philosophy is work with whoever you can. You don't have to get into bed with them necessarily. Um, so there are lots of really good people in really good organizations out there. Um, we work with, with the refugee council where you can work with them. I think there is a distinctiveness. There is something extra that we've got as Christians okay, that you won't find in other places. But there are loads of Christians working in organizations like Refugee Council. And, and who are improving stuff there. So, so most of these organizations are re- doing really good stuff, but often what they don't do is actually the right-on-the-ground stuff. And um, part... Um, our NACOM organization, I represent that. Um, in ter- and that, that's not a Christian thing, but you look at the people on, the, on our steering group on our trustees, and out of the eight in the trustees, six of them are Christians. So, um, and they're the most active ones across the country. So, people who are doing the stuff on the ground, often that's where the Christians are, and that's where sort of rubber hits the road really. So, um, it's really, really important. And and uh, I'm part of a thing called the Strategic Alliance on Migrant Destitution, and there's about six organisations in that. One of which is Refugee Council, Refugee Action, Red Cross, and so on. But uh, it's only NACOM they're actually doing accommodation everybody else is doing other stuff legal stuff and so on which is all helpful and all important but actually the nitty gritty stuff that's really really needed more than anything comes through our Nakam organizations and often through the churches so yeah I don't know if that answers the question.
2: Great. Well, we're just reaching 12.30. I'm very conscious not to go over time because of other um, commitments and children and so forth. But um, uh, let's just show appreciation to Dave, first of all. <laughs> Thanks very much, Dave. Um, so before we go, just to say we're here again tomorrow looking at the diversity issue with Topicolio. So uh, just a quick reminder... Uh, Dave's book, Refugee Stories, highly recommended in the bookstore. If you're interested in a general narrative relating to this sort of issue of discriminating between people um, uh, in terms of their value, The Myth of the Undeserving Poor, this is a book that I wrote with one of my colleagues in Jubilee Plus. That's still on the bookstore, uh, the Jubilee Plus Conference, 29th of October. You're very welcome to that. Um, Hope to see you again tomorrow. Uh, And then uh, the final one will be on welfare. That'll be a fascinating discussion where we look at a very hot topic um, in our culture as well. So thanks for being with us. Sorry we haven't answered everything. Dave is here. I'm here as well for as long as it takes. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks for being with us.